Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Why didn't the lifeguard save the hippie? He was too far out, man. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm from APM, American Public Media. This is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Christopher Owens of the band Girls. That'll help break the ice. Yes. Later, we'll speak with Stephen Merchant, comedian and co-creator of The Office. Also coming up, humorist Dave Barry attempts to read from his new novel. And Style Ambassador Simon Doonan answers your etiquette questions. And if this sounds familiar to some of you, that's because this is an encore presentation. Indeed, the show you were about to hear first aired actually in January 13th of this year. It was a Friday the 13th, and we survived it. Clearly. Yeah. But first, the new news. Which, by the time you listen to this podcast, will be old news. So instead, on with the show. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. This week, an encore presentation of a show we first aired in January. Yes. So coming up, we'll be hearing from Ezra Miller, who played the evil son in the film We Need to Talk About Kevin. Later, we'll talk to groundbreaking artist Chris Burton. All of that is worth replaying, we think. And, well, Rico, since you were called to jury duty this week, we had no choice. That's that is right. <laughs> Guilty as we say in the courthouse. Next week, we'll return with a new show featuring musician Patti Smith. But now let's travel back to January when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these cultural headlines. Silent film, The Artist, was the big winner at the Critics' Choice Awards. This week is Upfront's week when the major broadcast networks present their schedules for the upcoming year to advertisers. That new song released by Jay-Z, we're hearing Little Blue Ivy for the first time. Now for something you might not have heard. We are talking with Rehan Harmansi. She is culture editor at The Bay Citizen up in San Francisco. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Um, well, guys, I'm going to be talking about a letter a freelance writer named Julianne Schmolinski wrote to uh, New York Times crossword editor Will Shorts regarding the meaning of the word illin. Ah. <laughs> it's come to this. <laughs> yes. we got to find some way to get Will Shorts on public radio yeah. more. Let's do it right now. <laughs> well, so apparently um, illin was an answer in this past week's New York Times crossword. and uh, Illin is a hip-hop term for those who don't know. Indeed. This freelance writer took issue with the negative meaning Will Schwartz attributed to the word. So across the internet, a battle has been raging. <laughs> Ilan is good or bad. And uh, Will Schwartz seemed to think that if you're Ilan, you're closer to being sick than you are being really awesome. You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's clear, I think. That's true. That's what I grew up with it as, you know, run DMCs, you be Ilan. Right. So wait, so she wrote to Will Schwartz. She thought it meant good. Right. And he wrote back, no, no, no. And she wrote back, and of course this exchange has been copied widely on a variety <laughs> of blogs, citing the rapper T.I. Um, and actually using Ilan in a sentence for Will Schwartz. Which was? Uh, Hello, my new best friend, Will Schwartz. How are you today? Will Schwartz. Ellen, um, which to me doesn't really definitively settle it at all. Yeah. Although I would pay money to hear that conversation actually go down. Yeah. Well, Great. 
Yeah. Right, right, right. I don't know, but the last name, like Shorts, he probably has some hip-hop in his background. Like, sure. Two, two Shorts, yeah. there's a Z in there. <laughs> this reminds me, my father is a avid crossword solver, and more and more he calls me now because the, the references are getting younger for him. And oh. so he'll be like, you know, musician from Roxy Music, three letters, and I'll be like, Eno. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I get to feel like a genius, which is great, but it's At frustrating last. for the, the older folks. It is. They have to walk a fine line. I feel like it can be embar- Like, I feel embarrassed for them for using the word illin. <laughs> yeah, me too. Rightly or wrongly. Right. Are there no other words, really? Couldn't they have made an Iliad or something? <laughs> Rayhan Harmansi, thank you for the small talk. You guys be illin. And now, time for cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our always refreshing history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1932, a woman named Hattie Carraway became a household name. These days, most folks at your dinner party won't even know who she was. Mm. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. In November 1931, Hattie Carraway was a quiet housewife. Two months later, she'd become the first woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate. How did it happen? Well, Hattie's husband was a senator from Arkansas, and he died. The Democratic Party needed someone to keep his Senate seat warm for the remaining few months of his term. So they helped Hattie win a special election, and presto! She'd made history. Now, Hattie wasn't exactly a firebrand. She never made speeches and spent most of her time on the Senate floor knitting. Reporters called her Silent Hattie, which was fine with the Democratic Party. She could just sit there until the next election, then let a man take over. But Hattie had other plans. Seems as much as she disliked making speeches, she kind of enjoyed actually making laws. So in May 1932, she blew everyone's mind by announcing she'd run for a second term. The party was not pleased. They refused to support Hattie in the primary. Six guys lined up to run against her. One of them predicted she'd be lucky to get a couple thousand votes. You know, from friends and those wacky feminists. Except one of those friends was Louisiana Governor Huey Long. He was the most popular politician in the South, and he popped over to Arkansas to campaign for Hattie. She won the primary, then won the election by a landslide, and six years later, she won again, all of which proved a woman could be a successful senator. Not that everyone took it to heart, 27 states have still never elected a woman to the Senate. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I am speaking with our friend Todd Thrasher. He's the award-winning mixologist at Restaurant Eve in Virginia near Washington, D.C. And Todd, for once, we have given you a history that does not involve blood and death. What drink does it inspire you to make? I have a drink called, uh, it has actually the drink of two names. The one that we can actually put on the menu, okay. which is called Hattie Bobatty, All right. also known as Hattie Badass. <laughs> being the first elected senator. I mean, for a woman, that was definitely badass. Absolutely. What uh, What's in this thing? First of all, you know, she comes from Tennessee. She was born in Tennessee, so I think we definitely need some uh, Jack Daniels whiskey. <laughs> all right. But she, uh, you know, she was a prohibitionist, so she probably did not drink in public, but I'm sure she had a few behind closed doors. They always so, do. 
They always do. So I have a, this kind of moonshine made here in Virginia. It's called Wassman's Rye Spirit. For yeah. those who don't live uh, in Virginia, what would we substitute? Rye whiskey would be fine. All right. So um, her last name's Caraway, so I, we definitely have to have a little Caraway honey syrup. Oh, man. And Huey Long is uh, from New Orleans, so a little Peychaud bitter. Oh, lovely. Put all of those into a mixing glass. Stir it for about a minute and then garnish it either with a honeycomb, if you can get your hands on them, or a uh, lemon twist. A honeycomb. I, I think making this drink is about as complicated as getting elected to the Senate. Exactly. So, Rico, fascinating history. I, of course. But to me, the fact that she was the first female senator is less of a big deal than the fact that she was the last senator who didn't talk constantly, yeah. hence her name, Silent Hattie. It's amazing. Yeah, instead of saying words that meant nothing, she actually said nothing. It's true. She More was, efficient. She was a rare item. <laughs> yeah. Folks, if thinking about the modern Senate makes you want to have a drink, you can find cocktail recipes on her website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is actor Ezra Miller. He's in the new film We Need to Talk About Kevin, which just hit theaters. In it, he plays a smart, malevolent teenager who spends most of his time making his mother's life total hell, yes, basically. It is, it is not a comedy. It's not upbeat. Uh, Tilda Swinton is nominated for a Golden Globe this week for portraying the mom. So, how's school going? It's going. How about your teachers? Are there any who are right. And what bands am I listening to these days? Next, you can wheedle about whether there isn't some cute little in the front row who's got me itchy. Right around dessert, you can ask about drugs. Then finally, once you've sucked up that entire bottle of wine, you can go all gooey-eyed and say how nice it is to spend quality time together. You can scooch over and put your arm around my shoulder and give it a little squeeze. He is a really disturbing character. And today, Ezra's here to talk about some similarly creepy performances that came before him. Hello, I'm Ezra Miller. I am Kevin in the film We Need to Talk About Kevin. And here is a list of my favorite demonic children in film. The first evil child would have to be Macaulay Culkin in The Good Son. Came out in 1993. In the film, little baby Elijah Wood's character loses his parents and goes to live with this family who has a son who appears to be like the dreamiest potential friend playing all these fantastic games with him and things are looking up, there's hope yet, and then... Targeting. It turns out Macaulay Culkin's character is just pure evil. What are you doing? He's shooting dogs with nail guns and running amok and terrorizing little Elijah Wood's character. What are you doing? I was only trying to scare him. It was clearly uh, Macaulay Culkin showing his range to be not only adorable fighting off robbers in the film Home Alone, but also an evil bad kid but using makeshift weapons in all scenarios. And that was the commonality between the roles that Macaulay Culkin played at that era. Rosemary, go back to bed. You know you're not supposed to be up and around. Uh, Rosemary. Shut up. Uh, number two, coming around to the most common scenario, which is the actual spawn of Satan. And it would have to be Rosemary's baby, the baby, 
who appears for maybe, I don't know, three seconds of screen time. Gnarled, evil little baby. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? He has his father's eyes. Rosemary's Baby is about a woman who becomes pregnant with Satan's child and is slowly becoming aware of that. What are you talking about? Guys' eyes are normal. Satan is his father, not Guy. I think the child spawn of Satan, it has some mythological convenience. This idea of explaining away the evil doings of children, um, sort of uh, removing the blame from the true parents and putting it on Lucifer. If my child is actually the spawn of the devil, then I certainly can't be blamed for bad parenting. Number three is another spawn of Satan that would have to be the omen, the original omen, 1976, the character of Damien, who made popular the devil child eye glare, a widespread, widely observed art form. You can find it in almost any contemporary horror film. There will be a child who has this, um, you know, he sort of tilts his head down a bit and then raises his eyes up. Very ominous, very eerie, devil child stare. Damien started that. I don't know the name of that young actor, but he's a, he's a wicked genius. The guest list from actor Ezra Miller. He plays another frightening kid in the movie We Need to Talk About Kevin. And Brendan, I was curious, so I looked it up. The child actor who played Damien in The Omen. Yes. His name was Harvey Stevens. Interesting name. (laughs) And apparently he got the part because during the audition, when the film's director Richard Donner told Harvey to attack him, Uh Harvey went crazy, wouldn't stop punching Richard Donner even after he yelled (laughs) cut, and eventually kicked him between the legs, shall we say. So basically, he wasn't really acting in The Omen. It was like more of a docudrama, the whole film. (laughs) That is right. I hope it was just a phase. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Stephen Merchant, creator of The Office, says success hasn't changed him. I, I think I'm still the same leggy blonde I always was. That and more when The Dinner Party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. You are listening to an encore episode that first aired in January. Coming up, humorist Dave Barry reads from his book, Lunatics. Maria never returned to the convent. She took her meager savings, bought a push-up bra, bleached her hair blonde, and now sings the weather forecast at a local TV station in Tallahassee, Florida. Pretty inspiring. Yeah. But first, we meet this week's guest of honor, writer and comedian Stephen Merchant. Yes, he co-created the TV shows The Office, Extras, and Life's Too Short. Back in January, he had just arrived in the U.S. for a stand-up comedy tour. And Brendan started the interview by asking one of our two standard questions. What question are you tired of being asked in interviews? The question I'm tired of being asked in interviews, probably... How did the office come about? Mm. Yeah, sorry, you might want to you might want to cross that off your list. So we're not we're not going to ask you, even though I'm dying to know. Sure, uh, I'd forget about it. It's all out there. You'll figure it I'm out. I'm just scratching that off my list. Um, does it strike you or, as funny or weird that in the U.S. the office will forever be associated with Steve Carell and kind of Scranton? Not at all. No, I I, I I'm very proud of that. I'm sure that the uh, Chilean version of the office has its own associations. Uh, there's a uh, <laughs> there's a French or there was a French version. I don't know if it's still going. There was a French Canadian version. 
There's an Israeli version. They work in French Canada? They work apparently in French Canada. That's you who uh -huh. badmouth them, not me. Um, <laughs> I've always wanted to see a Japanese version where they just do a really hard day's work and then go home. <laughs> I, uh, I, no, I'm proud. Of, I, mean, I grew up as a huge fan of American sitcoms, MASH, yeah. Roseanne, uh, le later Friends. So uh, I was very proud to have any association with a, with a successful American shows. You're doing a comedy tour right now. Um, the name of your show is Hello Ladies. Right. And this is about your trouble finding a wife, sort of. Uh-huh. Um, yet you're a funny, tall, British gazillionaire. Why do you think this is going to work? Why do you think people are going to believe you? Why do I think they're going to believe me? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is I, bogus. This is rubbish. I don't expect them to believe me. I, um, <laughs> I, 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 thanks, for, thanks for calling me a gazillionaire, by the way. I, uh, <laughs> I've just, I just cashed my um, gazillionth check, so I'm very proud of that. Listen, the show is, is, uh, was an excuse to talk about the various kind of romantic misfortunes that I've experienced uh, over the years. You know, I uh, wasn't always a gazillionaire. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it is uh, is sort of harking back to the days when, uh, you know, I was kind of an awkward teenager. And I think if you grow up as an awkward, gangly, nerdy teenager, I don't think that ever really leaves you. I think there's always a part of you that is that person. I don't like nightclubs. They don't like me. The bouncers in nightclubs don't want me in there. They don't want... I, I remember walking towards a nightclub, and I was walking towards it, and the bouncer just saw me come and just went, No. Walking towards that, going, what do you mean? He went, not trendy enough, mate. I remember saying, what do you mean, not trendy enough? And I swear to God, he went, we want people in here who look like they're going to provide glamour, not IT support. I like comedy that's very confessional. I, I was a huge Woody Allen fan growing up, particularly his stand-up tapes. I love the fact that even in his kind of surreal stories, there was a, that you felt there was something honest about it and that he was sort of sharing a part of himself. And, um, you know, Louis C.K. I'm a big fan of, again, who's someone who always feels very confessional, very honest, uh, Richard Pryor. So that's, you know, that's where it's sort of, that's what it's born out of. And self-abasement is kind of one of the undercurrents of your comedy. And, and you kind of play up your height and, and right. that sort of thing. I was going to ask, actually, because I've never played in America. And did, well, is, is the sort of self-deprecating thing, will that play, do you think? Well, it worked for Woody Allen and Louis C.K. So, yeah, I think, that's it, true. I think it'll probably play. Good. Although here in Hollywood, where people read the trades and pay close attention to who's doing well, game, you know, might not have as much empathy for Stephen Merchant. Sure. I will just keep talking about how I'm a gazillionaire and that will win them back on the side. So your stand-up routine is nominally about your difficulty finding a romantic partnership. Right. Yet you're famously part of a very successful creative partnership with the comic Ricky Gervais, uh -huh. with whom you created The Office and other shows. So how does that work? Well, we, uh, we started off by drawing up a sort of set of ground rules that helps us work together. You know, um, we don't put stuff into the shows that the other person isn't happy with. No one has more of a say than the other. It's got to be a, a decision that we both agree on. And so, you know, that way we don't end up dissatisfied. Uh, even if there's mm. things we'd like to see in the show, you know, we have to save that for our own private projects. We don't socialize with each other particularly. We don't sort of live in a house together like the monkeys. <laughs> you know, generally speaking, we, you know, it's, um, it's worked this far. Because I'm a co-host of, a, you know, this program, which has some humor. And I, I'll be honest, sometimes handing over a joke is the hardest thing for me to do. Well, no, I've never, that's never concerned me, really, the handing over of a joke. I think because, you know, I, in a sense, I began life as a writer, and so mm. the pr creative process was the reward. That was what I loved as a kid, I was fascinated by. That was why I spent hours in little comedy clubs working out material. I, you know, it wasn't because I thought, could I get on a, you know, on a, on a podcast 
one day. Um, you know, a triumph though that is. Well, and and the gazillionaire stuff, I'm sure that you know papers over a lot of the problems. Right, and exactly, yeah. Whenever you feel a little bit um, shortchanged, you just count your gazillions. I don't want to take hello, ladies, too seriously, but it's fun too because it's a good way to kind of get insight into how you do comedy. Mm. But in all honesty, does fame get in the way of relationships? It's funny. They, they. I remember reading a quote from someone. I forget who it was. It might have been um, Gwyneth Paltrow, hmm. who said, "I think it was. I think it was her." But she said something like, "Fame doesn't necessarily change you. It changes everyone else." And I think that's very true. I think that the way people treat you, particularly in the street, um, must make it very hard for the other person in a relationship, particularly if they're not well known. Hmm. So I think it takes quite a strong-willed person to be able to be in a relationship with a, someone who's well known, because um, they are prone to be sort of pushed out of the way by, you know, someone who wants to strike up a conversation. I've seen that physically happen many times uh, with different <laughs> really? people. Literally just pushed, just pushed out of the way. Um, so um, for me, it, what it's done is it, it probably gave me a little bit more confidence with the opposite sex. But uh, I don't think it's fundamentally changed me, I guess. You know, I, I, I think I'm still the same lovable, leggy blonde I always was. Uh, I hope. Well, look, so we have another question on our show that we ask each our guest. Tell us something we don't know, and this it can be about you, or it could be just an interesting fact in the world. Okay. Um, well, I've never seen the film Rocky. Really? Yeah. Pretty shocking, <laughs> isn't it, that? I'm from Philadelphia originally, so I, I'm not only shocked, I'm a little offended. Yeah, right. I, um, I'm a big movie buff. I've, I, you know, I would consider myself a movie aficionado. I've seen a great many movies. Mm. But Rocky, I have never seen. And I, whenever people talk about it, whenever it's brought up in conversation, whenever it's cited as an example of something, or, you know, this is like a Rocky moment, don't know what you're talking about. And are you gonna are you gonna like fill that blind spot? Are you I gonna don't know try because it's it been or... a long time, and I've had many opportunities, and I've just never got round to it. So. And is it just that you look down on working class Philadelphians? No, because one of my favorite artists is Bruce Springsteen. He did the Streets of Philadelphia, you know, a very true. powerful That's song. True. So uh, not at all. <laughs> but um, I just what can I say? I feel like the moments passed for me and Rocky. Hmm. I hear what it's about very Rocky good. Four. Have you seen Rocky Four? Why would I see Rocky IV if I haven't seen Rocky? Why would I leap to Rocky IV? I'm a very, because, I'm a very anal person. I need to see it from beginning to end. I can't, I can't yeah, leap in it in part three or four. Well, the fact that you've never seen Rocky doesn't indicate to me that you're a completist or very anal because any film, you know, person worth their salt. Well, I That's didn't okay. realize I didn't realize I was going to elicit this kind. I thought there would be sympathy, not anger and hatred. I'm, I'm, I'm a little upset, frankly. All right. You obviously have a problem with Americans and the sports myth. And... <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. Okay, well, I guess uh, when life's been so good to you, you don't really need to watch movies about people who've struggled. Well, I hope, you know, I suppose this is evidence of, you know, when you become a gazillionaire, you lose touch with the, the working class <laughs> film characters that you grew up with. And to think, when Stephen Merchant hears this song, Rico, he has no idea what it's about. <laughs> That's right. For all he knows, it's a funeral dirge. It's a really inspiring funeral dirge. Very You're right. upbeat. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's so driven. You know, he hasn't seen Rocky, so he doesn't know that even if you're down on your luck, you can make it back on top. Well, it's worked for him so far. Maybe we should have not seen that movie. We'd be super point. famous. Uh, folks, you can spar with us verbally. Send us email via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Eavesdrop. 
Humorist Dave Barry and one of the first Saturday Night Live writers, Alan Zweibel, have a new novel out. It's called Lunatics. Today we overhear them reading a dinner party-worthy excerpt. I'm Dave Barry. And I'm Alan Zweibel. And we're here to talk about our book, Lunatics, a, an improvisational novel that we wrote together. We alternated chapters. We assumed the roles of the uh, two main characters in the book. And um, uh, this is a story about two guys who live in New Jersey. One's name is uh, Philip Horkman, who uh, follows the rules and is a very, very good citizen. And another guy named Jeffrey Peckerman, who is the exact opposite. And their paths cross, a feud ensues, and uh, starts local and becomes worldwide eventually. This is a wonderful book. A lot of things happen, and we think you should read the entire book, but if you don't have time, we're going to read you the epilogue. You'll find out what happened to everybody. Jeffrey Peckerman is currently serving a life sentence without parole for crimes arising from his reaction to officiating decisions during an AYSO Girls Under 11 Division Championship game. Philip Horkman visits Jeffrey every week with the most benign and humanitarian of motives, which only makes it worse. Officer Barton Hempeldinger, the NYPD helicopter pilot who was shot in the scrotum, made a full recovery and sold the rights to his story, which became a made-for-cable movie, Manhood Down, starring Eric Estrada. The Ed Begley Jr. Sean Penn administration, despite the best of intentions, wound up involving U.S. troops in four new foreign wars, including one with Sweden. Buddy the lemur was given a permanent home in the Central Park Zoo, where he was a popular attraction for several months before suffocating himself when he got his head caught inside a condom thrown into his cage by a member of a field trip from a middle school in Queens. Fook left Chuck E. Cheese immediately after his image appeared on the TV news. He remains undercover, working at Walt Disney World in the capacity of Pluto. Maria never returned to the convent. She took her meager savings, bought a push-up bra, bleached her hair blonde, and now sings the weather forecast at a local TV station in Tallahassee, Florida. Yo, the Korean high school student who worked part-time at the wine shop is now 21 years old and manages one of Horkman's new stores. He is no longer Korean. Ramon Ramona Roman Jr. formed a merengue band called Carlo, Carla, and Carlo Jr. Captain Sven Lutfix was relieved of command of the SS Winsong and is currently working at a Long Island Starbucks. Cherise Fricker quietly left Cuba with a 22-year-old professional bodybuilder named Miguel and two duffel bags. She settled in Central America where, through a series of ruthless maneuvers, she acquired a secret controlling interest in the Panama Canal. HR 623, which would return American toilets to their glory days, continues to languish as it has for more than 12 unconscionable years in the house of well, unconscionable. Unconscionable years in the House Commerce Subcommittee of Energy and... You wrote that one, didn't yes, you, I you did. bastard? Okay. <laughs> and I knew this moment would come. <laughs> yeah. The Fruxnet computer virus spread rapidly throughout the internet, where its most severe impact was a complete shutdown of both Facebook and Twitter, resulting in a spectacular worldwide increase in worker productivity. Brian Williams resigned from NBC News after the Horkman, Peckerman, Ed Begley Jr. presidential race, stating, I've worked far too hard and far too long to have to cover like this. When last seen, he answered to the name Tuffy and was bending balloons at children's birthday parties. The Mickey Mantle rookie card, which was worth $250,000 before Peckerman rolled and inserted it into it. <laughs> Okay. Okay, now. I can do this. <clears throat> the Mickey Mantle rookie card, which was worth... <laughs> <laughs> no, really. 
<laughs> okay. <sighs> Just don't look at me, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to cover my head. You know, the FCC wouldn't have let us air that last sentence anyway, so it's just as well we stopped there. That was humorist Dave Barry and Alan Zweibel trying to read the epilogue from their latest novel, Lunatics. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. So, Brendan, this week, artist Chris Burden unveils a new installation piece at the L.A. County Museum of Art. Uh-oh, was and... anyone harmed during the making of this <laughs> piece? No, but I know why you'd think that. Uh, Burden exploded onto the art scene in the early 70s with unsettling performance pieces, let's say, that put him in physical danger. On purpose. On purpose. Yeah. But for years, he has also created giant installation pieces his latest is called Metropolis 2, mm-hmm. and it's like a kid's dream slot car racetrack on steroids. A while back, I visited him at his studio and spoke to him about it. And we are here in your studio looking at this thing, which is enormous. Can you kind of describe its dimensions and what it looks like? Yes, its footprint is 20 by 30 feet. It's about 10 feet high. It looks kind of like a jungle gym of steel tubing and Affixed to all these uh, levels are roadways, railroad tracks, and skyscrapers. When the sculpture is running, uh, 1,100 hot wheel type cars circulate through the whole system at a scale speed of 240 miles an hour. Is there a reason why you picked 240 miles an hour, by the way? No, it was just something we, we tried to make the cars go as fast as we could without having them fly off the roadways, which is wonderful. Uh, I look forward to traveling in my car at those speeds. I know. It sounds like the most fun thing that you could do as an artist. It's like, let's see how fast we can get these little cars to go. It's something I've wanted to do since I was four. Y- yeah, but it's also a model for the future, how fast we could go. If uh, every car was satellite controlled and we all had a digital slot, uh, we could uh, effectively travel 10 times faster on surface streets. Do you want to see that happen? Oh, yes, I do. Absolutely. We take all the stress of uh, commuting away. Or make it incredibly stressful because things would be going so freaking fast. No, no, you would be in a private railroad car. You wouldn't be allowed to accelerate, pass on blind corners, run stop signs. In fact, there wouldn't even be need, need to be uh, traffic signals. The high-speed traffic would weave itself. Like, like, Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Every intersection would just be timed so no car would hit each other, but they could go through and just miss each other. That, it sounds wonderful. It also, though, I can imagine an art critic saying, that sounds really fascist. It's like, basically, we're not going to have in control of our individual cars. We're going to give somebody else the power to decide when and how these things go. Uh, don't forget your California handbook. Driving is a privilege, not a right. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, this and a lot of your installations are huge toys, which is a big change from your early performance art where you were shot you were literally crucified on a Volkswagen. You go from that to basically playing. What caused that shift? No, I don't think there is a real shift. I don't think this is that much different from the piece on the Volkswagen. What is the relationship of man to machine, mankind to machine? It's ambivalent. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Well, I... I'm not sure you shouldn't ask me, but the thing, I think the shoot performance has been asked, what's it like to be shot? For those who don't know, in shoot, you were shot in the arm with a rifle in an art gallery. I learned about this in a basic art history class, and I probably thought about it 
at least a couple of times a year, every year since for like 20 years. Does it surprise you that, you know, people wonder about it? It's a very powerful image. No, not at all. It's a dragon that everybody subconsciously has dealt with. What is this, this thing of being shot? What is it? You see it depicted in the entertainment industry over and over and over. So what is this dragon? And I think it was a scientific and a philosophical position to, to face it head on. So I don't feel too bad asking, what was it like? It was like a, a Mack Freightliner hitting you in the arm. Hmm. Well, our second question is kind of the converse. Tell us something we don't know, either about yourself or the world, that would surprise people at a dinner party. Well, if I had another life to leave, I'd love to be uh, evangelist, the preacher. A preacher? Yeah, a preacher. I think it's a very lucrative feel, and I think the overhead's really low, too. I think you might have a hard time starting that career since you had yourself crucified on a Volkswagen earlier in your life. I don't know. I think uh, if I chose to, I could, but... Why don't you? What's keeping you, man? I'm an artist. <laughs> so, Rico, I, too, see the connection between an installation piece about car traffic yeah. and a performance piece where you ask someone to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that big a stretch for yeah. me. <laughs> Traffic can inspire some dire thoughts. Just please let me know the next time that occurs to you, though, man. I'm, oh. I'm here for you. So kind of you. Thanks. Yeah. Coming up, Simon Doonan is here with Etiquette Tips. He's a style ambassador, whatever that means. It means not only do I have an embassy, I have a sash. Respect the sash. All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and you're listening to an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in January. It featured a lot of great stuff you'll hear in a few minutes, including a dinner party soundtrack from the band The War on Drugs, and Rico learning all about the humble yet tasty Frito Pie. Indeed, but first up, <laughs> etiquette. Every week, listeners send us their questions about how to behave, and we invited stylist and author Simon Doonan to answer them. He works for Barney's, the high-end department store. Brendan started by asking Simon about his title. And actually, Simon, I heard you're the creative ambassador. Does that mean you have an embassy and, like, ineffectual soldiers? <laughs> it means not only do I have an embassy, I have a sash. Oh, my God. Wow. important thing. Hello, sash. Wow. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of ambassadors getting kicked out of various countries around the world. <laughs> so be careful. Okay. Well, you also have a new book called Gay Men Don't Get Fat, and this is a really funny book that provides a fair amount of advice, which is why you were here for our etiquette segment. And the main thesis is that gay men are basically French women— with their style, their low-calorie diets. Could you tell us a little more about that, since Rico and I are neither gay men or French women? Yeah. Well, my book is a humor book. I mean, it's full of insane generalizations <laughs> and sweeping statements. <laughs> but I do think underpinning the whole thing is the basic idea that because of our kind of outsider status, we mm. gay men um, have an idiosyncratic way of seeing things, which is ultimately creative and for particularly straight women who are going through a period of being very self-critical, you know, if they don't look like Angelina Jolie, they feel like they should kill themselves. <laughs> um, I'm able to offer them some sense of panache and fun and, you know, how to navigate the world and feel fabulous about yourself without succumbing to that kind of self-critical, masochistic way of approaching life. Well, we're here to ask you advice. So this seems the perfect fit. And our first question, I think Brendan 
has. Yeah. It's from Julia in San Diego, California. And her question is, if a couple breaks an engagement, should the girl or guy return the ring? Mm. Um, I guess it depends on whether she likes it or not. <laughs> you know, if it's really a great ring, hang on to it. Like, claim that you can't get it off your finger and... You know, no matter how much olive oil or water people slosh on it to pull it off, just clench that little finger and hang on to it. It's a purely aesthetic decision, is what you're saying. Entirely aesthetic. Wow. So you should eat until your fingers bloat and then not remove the yes. ring. Yes. Oh, I wish I'd thought of that. That's a perfect yeah. um, approach. All right. Well, All right. Julia, there you go. I'll start Keep it. eating salty items. Keep it if it's pretty. Our second question comes from Angie in Austin, Texas. She writes, wearing black and brown is a fashion don't. Is that rule relevant anymore? I am seeing black and brown paired together in every store. Hmm. Um, The landscape of fashion now is so chaotic and insane. You can basically wear anything you want. and You could set fire to yourself on Fifth (laughs) Avenue. Nobody would notice. People like Lady Gaga have raised the bar so high on what's visually acceptable or what people are used to. Black and brown, I would think it looks rather chic, especially with a little pink accent. Maybe you need a little pink corsage or a little pink belt or some little cheeky accessory. Maybe a pink book, because yeah. I think your cover yes. is bright pink. Oh, <laughs> my God. You guys are incredible. <laughs> pink book. You're welcome, Mr. Doonan. Mm. This is a question, though. Is this a rule that is only applicable in, you know, the major fashion centers of the world? Can I get away with this, you know, in the middle of America or, you know, someplace outside of New York City? Um, I'm absolutely useless with rules because all my <laughs> books, they're all about sort of liberating people from any conventions whatsoever like i i was once on that show fashion police and i was absolutely hopeless i just sat there like <laughs> the dormouse because you know i always want people to look more kooky like if a guy has a mullet i will tell you, you should grow that longer and put conditioner on it so it's thicker and more glossy that you know queer eye for the straight guy was about tidying people up and making the mainstreaming them in a funny kind of a way And I would always sort of push people in the other direction, like buy a blue stripper wig, you know, go (laughs) or a leopard jumpsuit. Wow. Which is very similar to a mullet with conditioner. Unless you're a a medical professional, those are the one people who you don't want anybody doing a procedure on you who's wearing like a blue stripper wig and a leopard jumpsuit. Nobody, you don't want somebody doing a colonoscopy on you in that outfit. (laughs) Although I don't think you're looking at them during the colonoscopy. (laughs) Good point. All right. uh, Another question? We just have a couple more here. This one is from Catherine in Seattle. She says, I was just at my college reunion and was introduced to a tipsy someone who had a small white curd of food on their face near the corner of their mouth. I ignored it. A friend of mine's wife joined the conversation, muttered under her breath, oh, for God's sake, isn't anyone going to help this guy out? Mm -hmm. Grabbed a napkin and wiped his mouth for him. He didn't seem to mind and the conversation proceeded. So while this is one way to deal with it, what are some other options for dealing with people who have food on their face? Um, I'm one of those people that just dives right in there, especially with neckties. If people's neckties have become, you know, sloppy and you can see the top button on their shirt, you know, while I'm talking to them, I just give it a yank and throttle them with their own tie. (laughs) Um, You know, again, we're living in the age of uh, Lady Gaga and Nicki Minaj. I think a bit of food on the face It's much better to say something, though I did see a guy in a very fancy restaurant in Palm Beach and he was wearing some what were very old, lightweight tropical trousers and the the back seam had rotted completely. So the entire restaurant could see his pristine 
underwear. And um, even I was perplexed and didn't know how to handle that. So I guess it's, you know, a food on the mouth, though. That's an easy one. So, darling, get over here. Let's get this mess off your face. But I could actually see Nicki Minaj or Lady Gaga putting food on their mouth on purpose. Yes, just smearing it on like a mustache or beard. So what if you're messing with their fashion? Yes, hurling it on their their mouths, everybody else's (laughs) mouths, you know. Sure, it's fun. It's very punk rock. Indeed. Uh, We're going to close this out with this standard question we ask everybody who comes on our etiquette segment. What is the most memorable get-together you have ever been to? Who, what, where? Details, please. Um, What springs to mind is there used to be in Miami, down by the docks, this big discotheque back in the 80s where Cuban immigrants would go. And um, I went there on New Year's Eve, and it was one of the most crazy, fun evenings of my life. But it was so wild. You know when you go to parties, especially in New York, where everybody's there through obligation, they're going to something else, Mm. everybody's looking over their shoulder. These people were in it and of it, and it was the most exuberant fun. They were all line dancing. It was so great. Man, if there's one thing that I'm taking from all of your advice today, it's to commit. It's like if you're going to the New Year's party, be at the New Year's party. Completely. Be present. Put that silly phone down. Stop texting and um, accessorize your black and brown outfit with a little pink (laughs) je ne sais quoi. Perfect. (laughs) We know just the pink je ne sais quoi. It's called Gay Men Don't Get Fat. It's by Simon Doonan, our guest. Thanks so much for joining us for Etiquette. Groovy, anytime. And now, time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan... We are living in the age of the frito pie. Wow. Okay. That sounds better than, you know, the age of the mine apocalypse. Sure. (laughs) It is tons better than that and more delicious. Frito pie is a humble street food. It's actually assembled in a bag of Frito chips. Sounds humble. And it's suddenly the talk of haute cuisine. Savoir magazine just put it on its annual list of 100 trendy food items. Okay. So this week I met up with Brianna Valdez. She is one of the women behind Comal. It's a pop-up food project that serves Texan cuisine. Their Frito pie was recently named the best in L.A., and I asked her to tell me where the dish comes from. The Frito pie has, uh, it's debatable where exactly it comes from, but I uh, subscribe to the story of it coming from the mother of the inventor of the Frito. Oh, really? The, who invented the actual chip? Who inv- invented the chip. Yeah, sometimes, sometime in the 1930s. The idea is that they had so many Fritos laying around that they thought, well, let's pour some chili over it because they were from San Antonio. Texas. Texas. And they're known for having, like, kind of being a home for chili. So uh, that's the base of any Frito pie is the chili. The chili can be, uh, from, depending on what region you're from, it can have just beef. It can have beef and beans and the different levels of spice. Now, you said depending on the region. Do you mean different regions of Texas? Is there a place outside the state that typically makes this stuff? They're also found in Santa Fe. Some people claim that the first Frito pie was uh, from Santa Fe, but uh, Frito-Lay and uh, Texans claim that it's from Texas originally. And you happen to be from Texas. Isn't I that do. unusual? <laughs> Coincidence. So, all right, let's construct this thing. Now, it's it's constructed okay. in the Frito bag. So what you do is you lay the Frito bag on the side, and you just kind of take some scissors and take off the side. You don't open the top of it. You open the Length- outer seam. Lengthways is better because it gives you a, a bigger area to work with. So then um, add some chili on top. 
today we're having this vegetarian style. Right. Today we're make we've made a vegan chili. Which makes it that much more L.A. to me. Which is very L.A. Typically, though, this would be meat. And what? how do you prepare the meat? It's a chuck roast. Braised. It can be braised in pork fat or without. Beef cooked in pork fat? Is an option, yes. That is awesome. Always. always. <laughs> but we're going with vegetarian. We're going with vegan today. This one has kidney beans, um, mushrooms. It has a little soy riso. The people of Texas right now are just disgusted at you. <laughs> soy riso. <laughs> Um, all right, so then what comes next? This is the second layer. Now we're going to layer the works. So we're going to start by adding thinly sliced iceberg lettuce, which adds like a nice crisp element. Going to add a little sour cream, some freshly diced red onions, jalapenos that can be either freshly sliced or pickled. Spicy. And you're also using jack cheese on this, right? Yep, we're putting a little jack cheese. And now what you've got is a big bag of kind of like a deconstructed taco. But instead of the tortilla, it's Fritos in a bag. Rico, that's a great point. In some areas, they call it a walking taco. Really? Where? New Mexico. Oh, right. Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. But we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. But they have called it a walking taco. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Absurd. All right. I'm going to try some. Are we done? Yes, please. We're done. Ooh, the bag is kind of warm. The chili should be hot to melt the cheese and kind of get everything melted together. Oh, my God. It's getting all soupy and creamy. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Mmm. It is delicious. It is not at all dignified treat. I'm getting it all over my mouth and I'm eating it out of a bag. You did well though. I think you got a little bit of everything in that bite. I heard the crisp of the the chips and the iceberg and... You do get the crunchy and the creamy and kind of a little salty, but it's actually, it is surprising because there's hot kind of stewy items in this and the chip actually holds up to it. This is surprising. It does really keep its form. Every piece is coated with some chili, but it's, you can still get that crunch in every single bite that's really addictive <laughs> i actually hadn't th- i hadn't thought about that that nachos one of the problems that i have with nachos is that you get all this delicious stuff on top and it never filters down to the bottom chips and here the bag ensures that every chip yeah. will be coated the bag is key although that does mean that you have to you know advertise that you're eating junk food well that's actually why i want to talk about the idea of uh, frito being in the junk food category because fritos have three ingredients corn vegetable oil and salt and that's it but i mean like i think it probably has a lot of salt and a lot of oil right it probably does it's probably not something you want to eat every day but it's actually uh, a lot better than the ingredients are in the chips that we that are on the market today yeah sure it's not yeah. like it's not funyuns it's not funyuns it's not flaming hot cheetos and just funyun pie sounds like something you'd throw at a clown Brendan, something I did not make clear in that piece, I think, is okay. that you eat the Frito pie with a fork. Sophisticated. Yeah. Oh. I don't want people getting the idea that I just poured a bag full of chips and chili directly into my mouth. No, that would not be the ideal walking taco. No. It would be really hard to walk with aluminum and chuck roast all over your face, <laughs> blocking your vision. It would be, I would stumble. Folks, there's more about Kamal and Frito pies at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. and pies. So ladies and gentlemen, we've sparred with Stephen Merchant, giggled with Chris Burden, and listened to Dave Barry have a meltdown. (laughs) We've but one thing left to give you for a killer dinner party, some music to play. And here with suggestions for a party soundtrack is Adam Grenducial. He is the man behind the critically adored band The War on Drugs. They are on tour as we speak. 
Hey, this is uh, Adam Grandusiel from uh, The War on Drugs. Our new album is called Slave Ambient on Secretly Canadian. Well, I guess the first one would be uh, a song called A Pagan Place by The Water Boys. From uh, the Water Boys' second record, early 80s, 83, 84. When we played the UK recently, people were always comparing us to the Water Boys, and I'd heard a little bit of them years ago. It never really caught on, so over the course of the last couple months, I've been buying every Water Boys record when I see it. They invented the term the big sound, and that was what they categorized as this record and the one after it. Just the production was really, really big, and I think a lot of bands around that time took a lot of cues from um, the way that the, those two Waterboys records sounded. Just a gorgeous song. So maybe that would be something. Definitely not for the end of the meal, because that's when you're, that, that's when you'd put on uh, this other song. I'm gonna say. band called uh, Blues Control and they have a couple records out the one song that I always love by them is called Migration and it's from Blues Control Blues Control and they're an uh, instrumental band I don't know if they'd be, like be called instrumental or, or new age would probably be what they would like to be called I've taken a lot of cues from a lot of their stuff over the years there's two people in the band Leah who plays piano and then Russ plays like guitar and does all the cassette sampling, running everything through amps, but it's really pretty and really like lush and really thick. It's got like just a lot of a lot of heart to it. At the end of the meal, this is what this is what comes on and everyone kinda lets the turkey sit in and just lean back on the couch and, you know, maybe have a cigarette or maybe uh, make some tea or some coffee. Let me see. Well, there's a song from Roxy Music called a 2HB, which um, Brian Ferry wrote for Humphrey Bogart. Oh, I was moved by your screen Celluloid pictures of living Your death could not kill you Brian Ferry and Humphrey Bogart do have some uh, personality similarities. Or I think I think Brian Ferry looked up to Humphrey Bogart a lot for I think it's probably something to do with his class, you know, like his his just like general mystique. He's looking at you, kid. Celebrate He's looking at you, kid. This is probably the one actually at the end of the night when everyone's putting their coats on, you know, when you're helping your friends put their coats on. Right after, uh, you know, maybe 45 minutes after Blues Control, everyone's finished, you know, finished their coffees and, and you know, wiped the cake off their face.
That was Adam Grendusil of the band The War on Drugs giving us his Dinner Party soundtrack. Yes. And you can actually hear The War on Drugs at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Indeed. And they also play at the Bonnaroo Festival in Tennessee on June 10th. And ladies and gentlemen, that is our encore rebroadcast of The Dinner Party for this week. Next week, we will be back with an all-new episode of the show featuring musician Patti Smith and actress Zasha Mamet from the HBO show Girls. The assistant producer of The Dinner Party is Jackson Musker. Thanks to Brendan Willard, Bill Lance, Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, Judy McAlpin, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Bon appétit. <laughs>